Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 20. The scriptures are God's word and his gift to us. So if you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back. And if you don't have one at home, please feel free to take it home with you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it describes the scriptures as God's, God breathed. And through these scriptures, God reveals himself and his character to us. Therefore, after the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all respond together. Thanks be to God. So let us settle our hearts and consider the truths of this passage for us today. Let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and, the, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to free, flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to hint them all, and he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let us just quickly pray. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Thank you for giving us your word, that we're able to learn more about you and your love for us, but also to equip us and correct us to live our lives for you. Thank you for your everlasting faithfulness, even though we turn away from you, and your grace and mercy towards us, Jesus, so much that you died for our sins, even though we don't deserve it and we can't repay it. Um, thank you for Andrew, and I just pray that you'll bless him and speak through him to us this morning. Still our hearts and minds and open them up to hear what you have to say to us. May our thoughts and our actions be shaped and changed by your word. I pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for that. Um, we're, we're just continuing our way through the, the book of Luke. Um, if you're new to our church, that's what we do. We, we just work our way through books of the Bible, usually apart from sometimes in the year when we'll take a break and, and, pre- and teach and preach on other things. Um, and we're in Luke chapter 3 this morning, as Lauren just read for us. Um, when, uh, do, you remember the, do you remember those crazy days when Donald Trump was president of the United States? Doesn't that feel like a lifetime ago? Um, when, when Donald Trump was president of the United States, on the 100-year anniversary of uh, women being granted the right to vote in America, he, he, he granted a, po- a posthumous, after she had died, a pardon for a woman called Susan B. Anthony. And Susan B. Anthony had been arrested and imprisoned for illegally voting in 1872. It was illegal because she was a woman. Um, and now we can probably all agree that, that pardoning Susan B. Anthony was a really good thing to do. But of course, uh, loads of people, the media, uh, jumped on, on this and, and said that Donald Trump was, was, was just doing something called virtue signaling. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, virtue signaling. It's kind of a product of the social media age, actually. Um, it's become really popular over the past number of years. But it just means um, when somebody does something small uh, in support of a cause without it costing them too much. And so this is why it's become, it's really a product of, of social media, because you can attach a label to your social media handle, or you can um, retweet something that somebody has t- tweeted, or you could share your op- opinion on, on um, Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement. And virtue signaling is basically when you uh, say you believe something, um, but don't really back that up with action. It's about, uh, it's about trying to look good without it actually costing you too much. And we all know this kind of thing when we see it. Um, if we take the food bank, for example, um, I can tweet and Instagram my support for the food bank and say how great this is, how wonderful this food bank work really is. But if I actually never go out of my way to support the food bank, then you could say that I'm just virtue signaling. Now compare that with, with Bruce here. Bruce, I'm going to pick on you because you're here. Um, we don't have to question how passionate Bruce is about the food bank. We don't have to question his belief in that work because the proof is in his actions. It's pr- what, what is in his heart, his care for the poor in his heart is actually backed up and proved by how he lives. And one of the questions I want us to consider today as we look at this passage in in Luke's gospel is, are we in danger of virtue signaling Jesus? 
Are we in danger of virtue signaling Jesus? In, in other words, what does it look like to, to, to really believe in and follow Jesus? It's easy to say that we love Jesus. It's easy to be part of a church community like ours. But what does real faith in Jesus look like? Because I, I think when we look at this passage, this is really what John is getting at. He's saying it, it's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to be part of the faith community. It's not enough to say the right things and even do the right religious activities. John is saying, and this is kind of a main thrust of what we're looking at today, the coming of Jesus requires true repentance, which leads to a transformed heart and a transformed life. The time that John comes on the scene, John the Baptist, we've kind of fast-forwarded to a time when Jesus is about 30 years old. Last week we left him when he was a boy in the temple at 12 years old. So we're about 18 years in the future now. And John appears, he's come on the scene, and it's a complex time. It's a time when uh, Roman authorities and Jewish authorities and religious authorities are all kind of competing and vying for power and control of the people. And it's into this situation that John appears and begins to proclaim this message, proclaim this baptism of repentance. And we're going to see three things as we, we move through this passage. We're going to see that true repentance means a transformed heart, which leads to a new way of living and why that's really good news. So let's start with this first one. True repentance means a transformed heart. Remember in the uh, pre-pandemic world when you could go to gigs and concerts? Remember what that was like? Um, It was pretty good. Well, well, John is kind of in some ways like a support act at a gig. I remember when I was uh, used to play in a band, it was always really discouraging when you were the headline act, but the support act were way better than you. That's not a horrible feeling. You're like, oh man, we have to like, the, the crowd's actually going to go in the opposite direction. Um, but with John, he's, he, he was never in danger of upstaging Jesus. He was the support act. He was there to, to get people ready, to prepare them for the main event, what was coming next. And, and, and this prophecy from hundreds of years before, from Isaiah, actually tell of John's coming. He is the one who's in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. It's on the screen. Let me, let's read this. And he talks about what is happening. As is written in the book of, uh, of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. All the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's almost as if God himself is coming and nature is laying out the red carpet. See how this works? Uh, John is declaring that something that has never been done before is coming into the world. A new way is coming. God is at work bringing his salvation into the world. Now, usually whenever me and Haley have people around our house, um, we, we like to tidy up a wee bit, maybe run the hoover around and put, tidy up all the toys and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you've been in our house and it hasn't been very tidy, that's not a reflection on how important you are to us or anything. It's just that we maybe haven't had tid- time to tidy up. Um, but we all prepare for the coming of someone we want to welcome, don't we? In some ways. We all prepare. Well, we'll look, at, look at the imagery Isaiah, Isaiah uses and, and Luke quotes, quotes here. Paths are going to be made straight and level. Valleys are going to be filled in. Mountains will be made low. In other words, God's coming into the world is powerful and supernatural. 
and nothing will stand in its way. Nothing is going to stand in its way. Just as God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites, so he is going to remove all the obstacles for his people when he comes to deliver them. Obstacles are going to be removed. Uh, People will no longer have to climb mountains to see God. And this event, this coming of this new way, the coming of God's salvation will be visible to all of creation. The whole world is going to see what God is, is doing. This will change the course of history. And what we're meant to see here is that in the coming of Jesus, God himself is going to rescue his people and nothing will stand in his way. And verse 3 tells us that, that John is proclaiming a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's a really weird phrase, isn't it? A, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what does it mean? Well, I think the key, the, the heart of what John is, is talking about here is a transformed heart, not just a religious act. A transformed heart, not just a religious act. You see, in these days, there were various kinds of baptism. It was actually a pretty popular and common thing. Um, various groups, uh, religious groups, practiced different kinds of baptism, but they were all basically when you would wash yourself in water, usually by immersing yourself in water, uh, and uh, in order that you could clean yourself in a religious sense. It was a religious act that if you washed yourself in a particular way, according to all the rules, you could be then admitted into the faith community. It was a religious act that you performed yourself in order to be clean. But John's baptism is different. John's baptism was not self-washing. John's baptism was not something that John's baptism was something that was done to you. And similar similarly to the way we baptize people in our church. I've never seen that video of him baptized and he's so eager, jumps in and like, jump before the minister can like do it, he like smashes himself in the water. Um, but usually, we don't baptize ourselves. We are baptized. Old baptism was about washing uh, and initiation into a faith community, but John's baptism is about spiritual renewal, new life. It's an external display of life. not trying to do something external that changes you internally. John says, yes, I will baptize you, but it has to be a sign of the transformation that has taken place in your heart. You can't just wash yourself and expect your sins to be forgiven. And this is where repentance comes in. John is saying that in order to have your sins forgiven and share in this new kingdom that Jesus built, it requires a transformed heart. This is what repentance is. It's a change of heart. Repentance is to alter your understanding. It's, it's, it's a willful decision to literally stop living one way and turn around and start living a new way. You can't just say, I repent, and that's it. Like Michael Scott in the office when he declares bankruptcy, I declare bankruptcy. You can't just declare bankruptcy. I didn't declare it, I said it. Um, I didn't say it, I declared it. You can't just declare repentance. Repentance isn't about saying some words. It's a real transformation that takes place. And so what all this means, what this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins means, is that in order to receive uh, the salvation that God is, is bringing into the world through Jesus requires true heart transformation. You can't just perform a religious act 
You need to actually repent. You need to change your way of, of thinking. You need to be truly sorry for your sins. You need to have your heart trans, uh, transformed. It's not enough to virtue signal Jesus. But, but I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we want a kind of easy religious Christianity, don't we? It'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? The kind of Christianity that, if we're honest with ourselves, is pretty common in Northern Ireland. It's so easy to be part of church culture here, isn't it? Like, by the way, if that's you and you grew up with your parents going to church, be thankful for that. But that isn't the, the, the point. Or, or you go to church because your friends do. Or you get married in a church because that's what you do. This easy cultural Christianity that basically requires nothing of us. We want the Jesus that says, look, just come to church now and again, and, and that's enough. Just take communion now and again, and that's enough. You don't think about gold or your money or your body or the poor and the needy. Sure, just do a few wee christian religious things like read your Bible and pray, and that's enough. Now, I'm not discouraging anyone from reading their Bible and praying. These are important things, but they're not the things that, that, that save us, are they? And this is the Jesus we want. We want the cheap Christianity. We don't want the Jesus that requires us to let go of our entire worldview, to be sorry for our sin and denounce our old ways of thinking. We don't want a Jesus that requires our heart to be transformed. But cheap Christianity isn't what true faith is. It doesn't bring about what John John the Baptist says here about the forgiveness of sins. We can't even rely on our Christian heritage because these these people were coming to, to, to John and saying, well, John, but don't you know um, that we're Jews? Don't you know that we're descendants from Abraham? That, that, don't you know that we're part of God's chosen people? And I love what John says. He says, don't even begin to think about that. Don't even begin to think about relying on your religious heritage because this new thing that I'm telling you is coming into the world. God is going to do away uh, w- with religion as you know it. You can't try to clean yourself. You can't claim that because you were born into a particular family or religion that you will be saved. You see, this new way that is coming, the salvation that Jesus brings, the new kingdom that he is bringing into the world requires us to lay down ourselves, requires us to uh, be truly sorry for our sins, to, to give ourselves over to Jesus, to allow him to, to walk into our Religion isn't enough. Family isn't enough. Morality isn't enough. Coming to church isn't enough. And and let me tell you as well, Jesus is of such infinite value that he is worthy of this kind of heart transformation. He is worthy of true repentance. And so John goes on to, to show us that this true heart transformation leads us to a new way of living. When the people hear John's message, they have a question. They say, well, well, what should we do? What do we need to do then? And John's answer is that true repentance is something that happens internally but has radical external results. Jesus never just talks about emotions. The Bible never just focuses on what goes on in our heart. Yes, that's, that's so important, but it's only genuine when it changes who we are and how we live. A truly transformed heart can't just be internal because what's on the inside will definitely come out, right? A truly transformed heart will lead to a transformed 
life. And this new way of living is proof that your heart has been changed by God. I can say I love my wife. I can say that till I'm blue in the face. But if I never actually demonstrate that I love her, you have every right to question whether I love her or not. I could talk about how much I love her. I could say it all the time. But if I never actually love her, then where's the value in my words? This is why John says in verse 8, and I have to say, when I read this this week, uh, these few words hit me like a ton of bricks, like a gut punch. In verse 8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, live your lives in such a way that demonstrates that your heart is actually being transformed. To put it in biblical terms, let your works prove your faith. Listen to how John explains this transformed life. This is uh, uh, verses 10 to 13. He says, the, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more money than you're authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Do you notice how practical the way of Jesus is? How practical this is? These three groups of people asked John the same question. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for me? And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? What does having a transformed heart mean for me? What does that look like? And the picture that John gives them is simply this. Living a life of mercy and justice. Living a life of mercy and justice. Just like Bruce was talking about earlier. A life of repentance is a life marked by concern for others. God is a God of mercy and justice, and so we should be merciful and just. A really core principle of the way of Jesus is that those who have provide for those who don't have. We saw this, I feel like I don't even need to talk about this because Bruce did such a good job in teaching us in this. If you have two, two coats, give one to someone who doesn't have any coats and then we all have a coat. And I promise I didn't plan on preaching this, this passage on the day that Bruce was here, but I love how the generosity and mercy in these practical ways are core values of the kingdom of God. If you have food, give food to the people who don't have any food. This is why we're partnering with the food bank, because we love Jesus and we want to follow Jesus. And that means caring for those in need. And I know, as we've heard, that the whole reason we're works so tired of is Jesus. And he wants to share the mercy and justice of the kingdom of God with the people in South Belfast. We are merciful because God has been merciful to us. We care for those in need because didn't God care for us in our need? Our deepest need by sending Jesus to come and die for us and be rose again from the dead for us. I was coming to ask John this question. What does it look like for us? And the tax collectors, remember, were Jewish people who collected taxes from their own people on behalf of the, the, the oppressive Roman Empire. And as you would imagine, they weren't very popular and there was a lot of corruption and there was a lot of extortion that happened. They would often collect too much money and then, then keep the extra for themselves. Tax collectors can make quite a bit of money doing that. They would have nice houses. 
almost said nice houses and fancy cars. They probably didn't have fancy cars, let's be honest. It was like the first century. But maybe they had a really fancy cart, I don't know. And John says, listen, you want to be baptized. Well, my baptism is actually about true heart transformation. So if your heart has been truly transformed and you're truly sorry for this, then you won't do this anymore. You will be fair. You will be just. In essence, he's saying, in the kingdom of God, no one gets taken advantage of. Now, I would imagine that most of us aren't in a position to financially take advantage of people that we're collecting money from. I know, maybe there are some. If you are, don't do that. <laughs> but I think that all of us are in a position to take advantage of people in different ways. Think about it on a, a kind of wider, a wide-angle lens view first. Think about the clothes we wear and, and, and the food we buy. Are others being taken advantage of through our shopping habits? And, and you know, sometimes in our in our uh, in our kind of particular tribe of Christianity, we don't focus on these things enough, the practical outworkings of, of the gospel, the practical outworkings of the kingdom of God. And it takes real effort to think this way because we rarely come face to face with the people who make the things that we consume. But we must think about these things. We need to consider how our actions may be contributing to others be, being taken advantage of. But what about on a more personal level, a more narrow angle? We all have people that trust us in our lives, don't we? Friends, family members, kids, parents, brothers, sisters. Do we take advantage of them for our benefit, even in small ways? Are we fair with how we make an income? Do we honor our employers with honesty and good timekeeping? In the kingdom of God, no one gets taken advantage of. And then there are the Roman soldiers. And I just love that there are people from all walks of life coming to receive John's message. And, and actually, there's about four different sermons we could have gone into today about the inclusivity of this and the political context. It's amazing. But people from uh, the Roman Jews, just people are all going to receive this. Anyway, that's a side <laughs> sermon. But the Roman soldiers were paid by the empire to be the soldiers, right? We all know what they looked like, the big brushy hats and the red things and and they were powerful physically. They were well-trained. They could beat you up. They could kill you easily. And they were there to keep the peace and to keep the people of Israel really at bay. And what was happening was they didn't really get paid that much from the Roman Empire. And so they started to abuse people to take their money. They would threaten them with violence and extort them. They were abusing their power and authority. And John says, if you've truly repented, don't do this. There's no point being baptized if you're still behaving like this. And you see, people who follow Jesus don't abuse their power and authority and influence. Now, you don't have to be a Roman soldier. I imagine none of us are Roman soldiers. You don't have to be a, if you are, that's a weird job. <laughs> uh, maybe you're like Joey and <laughs> working in the casino. I don't know. Um, but you don't even have to be a politician or a CEO to abuse power and we'll have various authority and influence, don't we? Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're married. Maybe you have friends. Maybe you're an employer or you supervise people in work. We all certainly have social media. That's a power in itself. 
power to inflict hurt and pain through our words without any accountability behind our screens. And we need to think about the consequences of what we do. We need to ask ourselves these tough questions because true faith in Jesus is not a religious act. It's a heart transformation which leads to a new way of living, living a life of mercy and justice. And notice that John doesn't tell any of these guys to, to, you need to quit your job, get out of that. Stop serving the Roman Empire. He doesn't. He tells them to, to, to be content in their situations, but go about your life full of concern for others. Put your money where your mouth is. Put your faith into action. Live your lives fairly and care for those in need. Live a life of mercy and justice. We must all, if we truly want to follow, consider this is what God has always been doing in the world. And I love that, that, I love that Bruce went right the way back to the Old Testament to, to Joseph. I totally knew the answer to that question, by the way. Um, <laughs> but we see this in, 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 in the prophet Micah, chapter 6. The prophet asks, he's like, what does God require? Does he require sacrifices and offerings and religious acts? Listen to his answer. This is Micah 6, verse 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good. O man is just a way of saying, O people, O humans. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? There's your transformed heart and transformed life right there. Transformed heart, walk humbly with your God. Transformed life, do justice and love kindness. By the way, he doesn't say love justice. He says do justice. God's kingdom that Jesus is bringing into the world is a kingdom of mercy and justice. A kingdom where no one goes without. Where no one has to go hungry. Where no one is taken advantage of or abused. And we get to live in that right now. This is the life we're called to. The church is designed by God to be a prototype of his kingdom. Um, it's, it's like, you know when a new housing development is being built and there's a, a show house? So before the, the thing is complete, you can walk into this house and see what it's like, see what this completed housing development will be like. We get to be that for God's kingdom. This is why it, this church is on the school. Well, there be a gospel city of people who love Jesus, love each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. Prepare the way of the Lord. Join God in the renewal of all things through caring for the poor, through, walk, through walking humbly, doing justice, loving kindness, seeking the good of our city, seeking the good of our neighbors. Church should be a community of caring for those in need, for making sure that no one goes hungry or goes without. A place of safety where everyone is treated fairly and with compassion. God is building his, his beautiful kingdom and, and one day when Jesus returns, it will be complete and Bruce will be out of a job. And, I, and Bruce, anytime we talk about food bank, he always says, I want to work myself out of a job. He doesn't want to work in a food bank. He wants the time when Jesus comes and no more need for food banks. And this is how we are to live right now, to join God in what he's doing in the world with true repentance, transformed hearts and transformed lives. And I want to finish then by seeing exactly why this is good news. In this, this last section of this passage, in these last few verses, we see that the people who are 
I mean, Luke says they're expectant, right? They're looking for the Messiah, and they come to John. They say, "John, are you the Messiah?" And it's almost like Monty Python. I'm, you know, I'm not the Messiah. That one. That's a bit blasphemous, but John is quick to shut that down. I am not him. The one who is coming is far more powerful, far more worthy. Listen, you 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 want to listen to me, but what do you see this guy? Sit down and tie his shoelaces. And then he explains to the people what Jesus is coming to do. And it may surprise us if we look closely. Let me read verses 17 to 18. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. And not for the first time in our short journey through the first couple of chapters of this gospel, we're seeing that there is an element of which Jesus brings to, comes to bring division, right? Jesus does divide the world. We know this. The winnowing fork was a tool that was used at harvest time, and, and it was really a way of separating the, the, the grain that would be weeped um, and, and the, the, the stalks, it's called the chaff, all the other bits, the dust that, that, are, that are worthless, that you can't use, that you can't eat, and those bits are burned up. And it's this idea that, of separation that John says that, that Jesus is coming to bring. And he uses pretty strong language here. And we don't want to read this part, but we have to because it's right here. And as Lauren told us, this is God's word. It's breathed out by him. So we need to be confronted. Some will be gathered into God's kingdom like the wheat that's gathered in for the harvest. And some people will be destroyed. John is referring to those who respond to Jesus with true repentance and those who don't. And I get it. We don't like to think in these terms, do we? But it's right here, so we need to face up to it. According to John, God's judgment is real. The people coming out of the city into the wilderness to hear John knew this. In verse 7, John says, you're, kind of, you're like snakes who are, who are fleeing a fire in the bush that you were hiding in. How did you know to, to flee this coming wrath, he says. God's, God's judgment is real. And we think, oh, please don't talk about judgment. We all, we all want God's judgment to come, don't we? You know how I know that? Because we all want a time when we don't need food banks. We all want justice to be done in the world. We all want all the wrongs to be done away with. We want the wrongs to be made right, don't we? We want an end to abuse and poverty and hunger and wars and famine. We want God to come and, and deal with these things. Jim, you're so terrible. Oh God, please just put an end to this. Well, this is what God has promised to do. Justice is coming. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, it will be a kingdom of justice. The wrongs will be made right. Hunger will end. Poverty will end. Injustice will end. But here's the rub, John says. If Jesus is to deal with all the wrong out there in the world, then he has to deal with all the wrong in here in my heart too. This is why true repentance, a transformed heart which leads to a transformed life, is so vital. Because there's no place for sin and injustice in God's kingdom. If there were, it wouldn't be God's kingdom. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait, weren't, didn't you just tell us that uh, you're going to show us why this is good news? Well, I am. And verse 18 tells us that John was preaching good news. Here's why it's good news. 
It's interesting that Luke puts judgment and good news right beside each other. We would usually never put those two things together. God's judgment and good news. But John is honest about judgment. You see, God will bring his justice. And here's why this is good news. Because with the promise of judgment comes the offer of mercy. With the promise of judgment comes the offer of mercy. Yes, of course, God is going to deal with all the wrong and all the sin in the world. And yes, that means dealing with my sin too. But because of his overwhelming, boundless love for us, love for me, love for you, God has made a way so that he can deal with our sin without us being destroyed. God, who is rich in mercy, and because of that great love with which he loves us, has made it possible for us not to face this judgment. You see how this is good news? God, and here's why this is so powerful. Who is the one who is coming with the winnowing fork in his hand to bring that separation and that judgment? It's Jesus. But the one who is coming with the winnowing fork in his hand, bringing God's judgment, is the very one who faces God's judgment on our behalf. Wow. Isn't that powerful? We are offered God's mercy through Jesus. Jesus takes on the judgment of God on our behalf, so instead of judgment, we can receive mercy. Do you see how good this is? Do you see, how, you see why true repentance and a transformed heart which leads to a transformed life is such good news? Do you see how good our Jesus is? I want you to see this. I want to believe this. John believed this so much that he was even put in prison for it. Because Herod, the, 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 who was the kind of leader of that area, the, the, the Jewish king over that area, he heard this message and he knew that there was a bunch of stuff in his life that he was doing that, that really wouldn't, that, that really isn't in line with God's kingdom. And what happened was he was so convicted by this that he was faced with this choice. I either need to repent and change my way of life and start doing mercy and justice or I'm going to shut it down. So he threw John in prison. And eventually, spoiler alert, John is executed. And we need to decide, like Herod, what are we going to do with this message? Are we going to be like Herod and reject it, lock it up so we don't have to listen to it anymore? Or are we going to receive it as good news? Are we going to see how God's justice and mercy is good news? Let me invite us this morning, maybe even for the first time, to receive this message as good news. Let me invite us to repent. So many messages, but you know, the Bible's a really old book. And this is really good news. Let me invite us as a church family to repent again, to be truly sorry, to allow our hearts to be transformed by this amazing grace of Jesus. And let us, as our church family, Village South Belfast, uh, let us have transformed hearts which lead to transformed lives, to show the streets around here the justice and mercy of God's kingdom. May we be transformed. Come, Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for the encouragement you've given us through Bruce and hearing the, the, the stories from the food bank. 
Lord, I pray convicted of virtue signaling Jesus, for trying to just do religious acts in some way of thinking that makes us okay. Lord, I pray that we would all just receive your mercy and your grace by just, even right now, just saying, Lord, I'm I want to crown Jesus as king and I want my heart to be transformed. Holy Spirit, do that work in our hearts. Allow us to see how good you are. Let us come to your table with joy. Holy Spirit, do your work among us. Amen. We're going to uh, respond to this word by, through worship. We're also going to take communion together um, and come to the Lord's table. And, and remember, this is more than symbolic. This is, is the place and the time when Jesus meets us in a special way. Um, this table, this bread and this wine, as weird as it is in tiny cups during COVID times and all that, this is a place where Jesus meets us in a special way, where he lays the table and has to remind us exactly what it cost him to face God's judgment, exactly what it cost him to extend that mercy to us so that we can go free and live in his kingdom of justice and mercy. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance for me, of me. And he also took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often in remembrance of me. And so, as often as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So right here in this meal, if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus is once again proving his mercy to us. It's a really good thing. And he says, Jesus says to you, come and eat, come and drink, Remember my sacrifice. Receive my mercy. Here is my body broken for you. Here's my blood poured out for you. Come and meet with me. Come and repent. Come and receive that mercy again. So if you are a Christian, I invite you to come to the table. And we'll do this as safe as we can. Just maybe.